Hi, this is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. It wasn't that long ago that if you wanted some information about a country or an area that you wanted to visit, you probably have to head to the library which means actually leaving the house. Or if you were lucky, you had a set of very expensive and cumbersome encyclopedias that took up a dozen feet of shelf space and weighed probably a couple hundred pounds. You'd have to find the index book, you'd search the topic, then find the volume that had the topic in it, and then search through that. And in the end, well, you'd have very little, to be honest. Nowadays, we have Google, and in a millisecond, you get a list of instantly available information for even the most obscure topics. Today, we will meet Grant Johnson, a man who played an important part in the transition from analog to digital by developing a website that acts as a sort of a digital repository of motorcycle travel information, and in the end, far more. And although Grant has completed his own 11-year round-the-world trip with his wife Susan aboard their BMW R80GS, he has become an expert through the riders that have contributed information to the website he owns, Horizons Unlimited. Today we talk with Grant about the website, his choice for adventure bikes, and a lot more. Oh, are you planning to buy a long-range gas tank for your motorcycle? Well, you might want to just wait until you listen to the show. You could change your mind. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. Listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Iron Butt. What do you think of when you hear that? Well, it's the IBA, the Iron Butt Association, and uh, it's an association of long-distance riders is what it is. But the reason I bring them up is because they put out an amazing magazine. I'll tell you, when you join them um, as a member, uh, or you can subscribe on its own, I think, as well, but when you join them as a member, they send you out this magazine. And I'm holding the magazine in my hand right now, the summer 2014 edition, um, that I guess it sells on the shelf for five ninety five as well. But what a wealth of information for anybody who's interested in motorcycles at all. I mean, they, they've got all kinds of things in this issue um, that are interesting to me, and I, I think to a lot of people riding in the rain um they they cover some braking on this one they've got um rider profiles they've got a control class a riding control class uh coverage in here um some really really good stuff and and i've been reading it for a while now i find the information just invaluable the riders are obviously very experienced they do a lot of miles and i'll tell you you know that's one thing that that i think is paramount it's one thing to um for instance a lot of the reviews you read are people who have got a brand new product they've uh tried the brand new product very in a very short period of time and they've come up with their opinion of the product which is fine and that's useful to a certain extent but for me for the most part I want to hear about things that have been tried long term I want to hear from people who have been doing something for a long time who are past the bling of the things that pop up and flash and, and you know really grab you when you first look at something and you see the shine on a on a brand new whatever and you look at it and you go wow that's amazing I want to hear from the people who got past that that, you know, they wore the thing until it wore in and then they wore it out and they can tell you what was good and what was great about it and what was really, really bad about it. In the Iron Butt Association, that's what you've got. You've got, I mean, you've got newbies in there too, of course, but you've got a lot of veteran riders here um, giving information all the time. And the attitude that I seem to get from the um, reading their magazine anyway is that they're quite willing to just give the information away. You know, they want to give it out there and and get uh, more people out there doing long-distance riding. So if you haven't checked it out already, um, check out the Iron Butt magazine on the shelf or or go to the website, ironbutt.com. Coming up. 
up next, we have Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Stay with us. This is Dr. Gregory Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, this is Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, and I'm calling in from Abbotsford, British Columbia. 1987 was the start of an 11-year journey for you, going around the world, top to bottom, all aboard your 1986 um, R80GS with Susan. Can you take us back to before that first trip and talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the trip? What inspired you and what gave you the confidence to think you could even pull it off? Well, I started riding on my 16th birthday. It was my first day I rode and had a 250 Ducati Scrambler and rode it everywhere. That was what you did in those days. In fact, the 250 was even considered to be a fairly big bike in those days. You know, I had friends with 55cc Hondas and 125s and 160s and stuff. And I had the big bike of the group of us, and I just rode it everywhere I could think of. And it was just never occurred to me to not ride it wherever I wanted to go. So I rode all over BC, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and all the rest of it. Then um, as I got into bigger bikes, Started riding a little farther afield, rode across the U.S. a couple of times and things like that. And it just seemed to be, well, why wouldn't you go? It never occurred to me that there was any difficulty in going wherever you wanted to. I always just felt, just just go, get on the bike and ride. It was nothing hard about it. Some of my friends thought, well, you want, you want to go to Mexico? Are you crazy? No, it seems perfectly reasonable to me. Around the world trip back in 1986-87 is a monumental thing. It just wasn't done, and there was no internet broadcasting all this information saying these people have done it and this is how to do it. What was it like planning it? Plan? What plan? There was never really a plan. It was always, let's just head south and we'll keep going. When we get to the bottom of South America, we'll turn left or maybe we'll turn right. We hadn't decided at that point where we were going to go. It was just to make it up as you go along. I mean, we sent out, uh, I think, about 50 letters, remember snail mail? Letters to embassies asking about border crossings and requirements to get into the country, and we got exactly zero responses. So we said, well, obviously you can do it. People have done it. Uh, we'd heard about Ted Simon. I'd read his book, and that was, yeah, okay. Doesn't sound very hard to me. So we just went, and we worked it out as we went along and got to a border and figured it out. And, Made it through and just kept on going until we ran out of money. Um, you guys went left in 1987. Um, how did you finance yourself through this? We'd saved up all the money we could possibly get, and we uh, sold a lot of stuff, sold virtually everything we owned, except my old couple of my old motorcycles, well, one old motorcycle, my old Hercules, and put the rest of it in, we decided to keep in storage. You never sell tools, of course, and uh, headed off. But we didn't get very far. We discovered that uh, it was more expensive traveling than we thought, and it was considerably more, or we traveled considerably slower than we expected. We got as far as Panama and figured out that we could get to South America. We could ride around South America for a little while, but we probably wouldn't have any money to get from South America to anywhere. So we ended up heading home and Actually, we never did get home. We went to Toronto instead of Vancouver, and Susan got a job there, and I started doing some photography or continued with my photography, and that was where we made some money and kept going from there. In 1986-1987, the internet was just a baby, and it certainly wasn't recognized as the source for information like it is nowadays. And nowadays, if we want to find out information about anything, any small tidbit, we will go to the internet and we will Google it and come up with an answer. Not just one answer, a really extensive list of answers that give us all the information at our fingertips. But you planning and doing this trip around the world didn't have that luxury. Where did you find your information about the places you're going to visit, about the current state of affairs or other solutions for any problems that would arise. <laughs> you didn't. You just arrived somewhere and figured it out as you went. There was very little information. You know, people spend an enormous amount of time preparing and planning to the point where I've seen maps of their entire trip around the world with little dots and the, the date and timestamp on it as to where they're going to be before they even leave. We didn't have any of that. <laughs> it was just... 
you go and you find a town and there's a road and oh that looks interesting and somebody tells you about another road and a cute little town at the end of it and you go and have a look and it's nice or it's crap and you move on you just follow your nose and get where you get and wherever you are you are and if it's good it's good and if it's not you leave and you get to a border and you figure it out you deal with it and you go on through you know there was no, there was no planning it's it's strictly just go when you ended up in Toronto and ended up working for a little bit, where do you go from there? From there, uh, Susan ended up getting a job in Australia with the company that she had been working with in Toronto. So we went from Toronto to New Zealand, spent some time in New Zealand, and then we spent uh, some more time, quite a bit of time in Australia, five years in the end, and got Australian citizenship and passports. And the whole time you're there, you're working and traveling around? Yeah, we're traveling around Australia. We did uh, a lot of the South Pacific Islands, uh, did some scuba diving in the area, Did uh, spent some time in Hong Kong doing some work. Both of us had some work there. And Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore. Lived in Singapore for almost a year. Um, got to see the area, which was quite cool. There's lots of interesting stuff in Southeast Asia. So we spent a lot of time there. And this is all on your R80? All in the R80. We've still got the R80. It's still in the garage. It still runs. It's still rideable. It's it's now to the point where it's ancient and really tired and the wiring is cracking and failing and hmm. it needs a massive rebuild and we've decided not to. We'll probably end up putting it in a museum somewhere. We did Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, um, generally Southeast Asia and the various islands. We went to uh, Bali places like that and eventually we finished with Australia and went to lived in Singapore then we went to uh, Susan's work took her to the US for a short time and from there we ended up with some more money we finally saved enough to head off again and we decided we're just gonna go and we're not gonna say where we're going and we're just gonna follow our noses again and if we end up around the world we do if we don't we don't doesn't matter so from there, we went to the UK and to the top of Norway. And once you get to the top of Norway, there's only one direction left, due south. <laughs> so we did that, headed all the way through Europe, through Africa, got to the bottom of Africa, and we were running out of money again. So Susan's saying, we're out of money, we're out of money. Susan's an accountant, by the way. Uh, so she's the one that's paying attention to the money. And I'm saying, hmm, hmm don't want to go home yet. You know, South America's on the way to Canada from Africa. Well, yeah, okay, sort of. So we went to South America and got to Buenos Aires. In Buenos Aires, we said, hmm, where shall we go? Oh, well, let's go south. Might as well go to the bottom. You know, we'd already done north of Europe and the south of Africa, so we figured we might as well do south of South America. Got to Ushuaia, very bottom, and guess what? We discovered that you could actually take a boat to Antarctica. So, and it's surprisingly cheap about $2,500 each but we were already out of money but hey what are credit cards for you know so we went to Antarctica did that had a good look around and I can highly recommend it if you're ever in southern South America you definitely want to go to Antarctica and from there headed north and eventually made it all the way to the top of North America at Prudhoe Bay and when you get to Prudhoe Bay if you just look across keep looking north you hit the North Pole and the other side there's um, Nordcap in the top of Norway and well okay we've more or less gone around the world north to south which wasn't the original plan but hey good enough and that to finish to finish that that was in 1998 when we finally finished that so 11 years total so you came back after your around the world trip and you decided to come up with horizons unlimited how did that come about <laughs> Well, we started that actually in Ushuaia. We were waiting for the boat, which was another five or six days, and we were on CompuServe at the time. And CompuServe said, you can have a web page. I said, what's a web page? Figured that out, created a quickie website using CompuServe software, put it up. And by the time we got back from Antarctica, there was emails from people asking us how we did Tunisia and how we did South Africa and various other parts along the trip. And so we started answering questions. And by the time we got back to Canada, there was lots of questions and lots of people asking. So we started the bulletin board. 
because I was tired of answering the same question again and again and again and figured if, if everybody else can add in what they learned and answer some of the questions as well, we could all share in the information and help each other do some traveling because, of course, at that time, there was very few people traveling. So the bulletin board started and we did started running a newsletter and it's just exploded and grown from there. Now we're up to 114,000 pages. Actually, it was Christmas of 97 to be exact. What is Horizons Unlimited all about now? It's still the same thing. Travelers helping each other figure out how to do all this international travel stuff. You know, you, it, it's fairly easy to get on your bike and ride to the next state or the next province or the next town. Or if you want, just on a Sunday, go to the local coffee shop and talk about riding. But going a little farther, people wonder, especially with all the, the uh, CNN, you listen to it and say, oh, it's dangerous, it's dangerous there, it's dangerous there, and everywhere is dangerous. Well, it actually isn't. Uh, so the, the website helps people understand that there's a lot of people doing this stuff now, and it's not actually all that dangerous. You just have to go, and people are the same everywhere. I mean, everybody just wants a nice life, and they want to be, you know, have a nice wife and kids and retire comfortably. I mean, we all want the same thing. You know, just want to have a good life. Um, it's not the place isn't full of bad guys everywhere you go. I mean, if you go to downtown Vancouver, a few, there's a few places at about 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. If you go down there drunk out of your mind, you're going to get into trouble. Well, same thing goes everywhere. You know, there's nothing mm -hmm. different about it. So it's just a matter of sharing the information. That's all we try and do is share information and help each other and get out there and go. Learn about the world. Find out what it's all about. I recently spoke with Austin Vince who said something similar. He said, find a place your country tells you not to visit and go there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have to put a little caveat to that. You, If you go to a country that your country tells you not to go to, your embassy won't necessarily help you if you get into trouble there. And your insurance may be invalid. Health insurance can be invalid if you go to a country that your country tells you you can't go to. So you do have to be a little careful. Wow, that's good information. Now, this is the sort of thing that people are going to find in Horizons Unlimited, I'm sure. Um, some would say that, like, I, I've had talked to many people about this over the past few months, and some people say that, you know, going blind is the real deal. You know, it's it's sort of like those purists, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I, I come from a paddling background as well, and I know that for canoeing and uh, kayaking, canoeing especially, some people like, you know, the old gear. They want to go out with a canvas canoe, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but, but isn't information and connection making a better experience for you when you're actually out there on the road rather than going blind? It depends. It, it depends a lot, I think, on the individual. Um, there are some people who are very comfortable with just completely going blind and figuring it out as they go and whatever happens, happens. And other people want to have something a little bit more structured and a little bit more information as to where they're going, who they're going to see. And then there's people who will only take tours because it's easy, it's safe. Um, and if they, I mean, you think about a lot of people who make good money but are really, really busy and work really, really hard, they don't have time to figure it all out. They've only got a, a limited period of time they can go in, so they take a tour, and that works for them too. So, and then you get the 22-year-old the who's fresh out of university and wants to have an adventure, and he's going to do something a little more hardcore, a little tougher, and a little looser, maybe a lot looser, and it, everybody's different. And you have to find out what works for you. And everybody's different, and you have to accept that. And I, I get frustrated sometimes with people saying, oh, my way is the only way, basically. They're saying, well, you have to do it hardcore. You have to do it the hard way. You have to do it cheap. You have to do it on a little tiny bike. You know, Honda C90 is the perfect bike. Well, it's not. None of that's perfect. It's perfect for you, but it's not perfect for the guy standing next to you or anybody else. You know, everybody's different. So the important thing is to decide what works for you and get out there and go. On one of your videos that you have, um, that you sell on your website, a really good video, you talk to a bunch of travelers that I think at the different meets that, um, that you help organize. That was what you did. I think you discussed many things, what bike to take, what equipment to take, but it sort of left the watchers sitting at the end thinking, well, they didn't actually tell me that any one was the perfect of anything. <laughs> that's because the only one that's perfect is the one you like. doesn't matter what you're riding. And that's the point of the whole video, isn't it? Absolutely. We were we very specifically, um, despite several people's advice to the contrary, said, 
we are not going to tell you what's the perfect setup, what's the perfect gear, what's the perfect bike, because there isn't one. Everybody's different. You take 10 long-distance travelers' equipment apart and listen to 10 different people say, tell them what they think is perfect, and you'll find there's 10 different answers. It's all different. Yeah, I have to tell you, Grant, when I got that video and sat down and watched it, I absolutely loved it. But it did leave me sort of scratching my head, and then that's the thought process that it put me through, and I realized that I see what you're saying. I see what you're showing here, is that um, there is no perfect Good. one. And the, and, the, and the information that I really got was the get up and go. You know, just get your yeah. stuff and go. That's the whole point. Then we succeeded completely with you. We got it right. <laughs> so I, I want to run through a rough idea of what it's like for someone to come to Horizons Unlimited website. How do they find their way around? Where do they start? It's going to be someone, obviously, who's looking to or considering planning a trip. What do they do when they arrive there? First thing they'll see probably is the homepage. And on the homepage, there's a, a menu bar. And we've gone to a lot of trouble. There's an enormous amount of effort and design and thought went into designing the menu system. Uh, you'll see on the top left, there's the hub. That's where the forums are and you ask questions, but you'll also see get inspired, get ready, gear up, on the road, connect, events, even the store and a little bit about HU and who we are. But when you hover your mouse over any of those, a mega menu will drop down and there's a huge amount of information right there. Drop down one of those menus, have a good read. And everybody new to the website should really spend a few minutes reading through the entire menu system. And they'll be amazed at the amount of information and what's there. Um, we find a lot of people get to the hub, the forums, and they start asking questions. And guess what? That information's on Get Ready. Oh, that information's on Connect. Oh, that information's on Gear Up. Oh, that information's on Events. It's all there. You just have to look at the menu system. And uh, it's amazing what's, what's the amount of information that's in there. So you're almost better to spend some time being the fly on the wall before you get in there and start asking the hardcore questions. Yes. Um, as with any bulletin board, if you ask a question that's been answered, asked and answered a thousand times, everybody will tell you effectively RTFM or it's being answered here. It's been answered many times. You know, don't annoy us by answering, by asking the same question when 10 seconds of searching would find the answer for you. That's for someone looking to uh, plan a trip or considering doing a trip. Um, what other things are on the website? Uh, let's see. At last count, there was about 300 blogs, full website-type blogs on the hub or on the website in the stories section. Yeah, there's lots of stories, 300-odd blogs from travelers that have been out there and done it. There's lots of stories from people asking, uh, telling about their trips around the world and where they've been or just not even necessarily around the world, but another continent or just to another country, what they've done, what they saw, what they learned, lots of photographs. So there's a ton of information there. And you get uh, into the hub. There's also a forum there that's specifically for just local short traveler stories or even long, long stories around the world. There's hundreds of them there as well. So there's, if you want to read people's stories about where they've been or you want to find out what it's like in a particular country, there's several hundred people that have given their story. What do you consider adventure? Anything that's one step farther than what you did yesterday. That's it. It's all an adventure. Doing anything a little bit more difficult or a little bit farther or a little bit stranger than what you've done before, that's an adventure. That's, that's all there is to it. It doesn't have to be anything specific. It doesn't have to be any specific definition. I think just do a little more than what you've done before, and that's a good enough adventure for anybody. How far do you have to go before you can call it an adventure? <laughs> I could take you on some adventures that would be about 10 miles from where I live. That'll do. It's an mm -hmm. adventure. It's harder. It's more difficult. It's something special. It's fantastic view. Um, but basically, a little bit more than what you've done before. That's it. I don't think it has to be any more complicated than that. And I get frustrated when people say, oh, it has to be something specific, or you have to go out for the weekend and do some big exotic ride. No, you don't. You just have to do more than you've done before, and that's an adventure for you. Well, I love what you said about your, your first bike there that you rode all over the place, and you said you didn't ever consider that uh, you should or shouldn't be going anywhere with the bike. Often nowadays you hear people talk about they're waiting to get the adventure bike, you know, the, the, the oh. big expensive adventure bike to go somewhere. Um, what do you think about that? Well, my first reaction is I want to gag. Um, <laughs> it, an adventure bike is a, 
a brand, a generic style of motorcycle today. Once upon a time, there was no such thing. There was just a motorcycle. You rode it. You did everything with it. You went everywhere with it. You rode it around the world. You motocrossed it. You road raced it. You did everything with it. It didn't matter. And you can still do all of those things with just about any bike out there. A guy, a Canadian, rode around the world a couple of years ago with a Honda Goldwing, a six-cylinder model. He went around the world with it. It's an adventure bike by some people's definition in that he did an adventure. He did something major and he went around the world with it. So by definition, the Honda Goldwing is an adventure bike. Um, another guy rode a Honda C90 through Africa. Another one did a C90 across all from that of Vostok all the way to the UK. Does that make a Honda C90 an adventure bike? Well, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, Jacques Lucasen rode a uh, Yamaha R1 around the world. Is an R1 an adventure bike? Well, it is now, according to Jacques. Uh, you don't have to have the adventure bike, the one that's got the adventure in the model name. That's that's branding. And yes, they're wonderful. I like our 1200 GSs. I think they're a wonderful bike. I'm probably going to buy one. Uh, they do fantastic stuff, and there's a lot of things you can do with them. But you don't have to have the the $28,000 brand new 1200 GS adventure with all the goodies on it in order to have an adventure or go riding around the world. You can ride whatever you've got. Just go. doesn't matter. It's, it's, I have nothing against the guy that can afford to buy the 1200 GS with all the goodies on it. I absolutely say good on you. Go for it. Have a great, great ride. But at the same time, if all you can afford is a 125, hey, good on you. Go for it. Same thing. It's, they're all adventure bikes. They're all it all comes down to what you do with it. And if you are willing to put it out there and go and do something special, do something a little different, go a little farther than you've gone before, then it's an adventure bike and you'll have an adventure and you'll have a great time and all, all power to you. Go for it. Some people talk about the advantages and disadvantages of uh, computerized bikes nowadays and, and the carbureted versions that are still around, like the KLR 650, which is still carbureted. Um, do you have any sort of feeling one way or another about that? One spot of time, I think it mattered because if your bike broke down and you couldn't fix it, which with electronics, you really can't fix it in a backyard garage, it mattered then. But today, you're a week away from getting anything shipped in anywhere in the world. It doesn't seem to matter where you are. If you're near any semblance of civilization, if you're on a road, there's a connection to the Internet somewhere not too far away. You can call home. You can order a part. FedEx will ship it into you within a week. So it really doesn't matter. Um, I mean, I, I heard a really good story from a guy who was in Namibia with his new 1200 GS, and it broke. Didn't know what the problem was. Just knew there was something wrong with the electronics. He had all kinds of error messages. He was from Germany, and he didn't know what to do. So he shipped the bike home to Germany, had it fixed, shipped it back to Namibia. You can do that. The cost was silly. He could have ordered every single part and had them all shipped into Namibia and just replaced every electronic component on the bike for a lot less. Either way, you can do it. So it doesn't matter what breaks. No matter what breaks, you won't have the right part with you. That's a fact of life, unless you're carrying a spare bike. So it doesn't matter whether it's electronics or whether it's mechanical components, but I can tell you that things like chains wear out and break and fail and shocks fail far more often than electronics do so what are you going to carry it's just you can't carry everything just ship it in and if you were leaving tomorrow to go on a, on a round the world trip what bike would you take if it was two of us again two up i would take a 1200 gs without hesitation they're a little heavy but once you're rolling they don't feel heavy and they work really well. They're actually easier to ride in the mud and the slop than my old R80 is. Um, first time I rode a 1200 GS off-road, I was absolutely amazed at how easy it was to ride after my R80. Modern technology, modern uh, suspension design, modern ge geometry, modern frame design, everything about it, the 1200 is easier to ride off-road than my R80 is. No, it's... It's not lighter, but it's definitely quite a bit heavier, but it still works better. It's easier to ride, especially for the average rider. Um, and the, the important thing is they work. They carry the load. They do everything you need. They'll go anywhere you want to go that's sensible. And if you don't do anything stupid, you'll be fine. 
they work well. I've heard people say it's nimble off-road, but I didn't realize it's that much better, especially when you're saying it better than your R80. I'm impressed. Well, take an R80 and put saddlebags and luggage on it and a full tank of fuel and a passenger and then do the same with a 1200. And I can tell you the 1200 is easier to ride. Hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of people are surprised. And if you've never ridden one, you, you, you have to ride a 1200 GS to comprehend how good it is. It's truly amazing. The first time I rode one, I was absolutely blown away. I couldn't believe how easy it was to ride. When you say the 1200, the 1150 is going to give the same feeling, right? Yeah. The 1100, 1150, 1200, all basically the same feeling. They're all truly amazing after old technology and old designs. I mean, when you think about it, the R80 GS is a 1970 design. That's a long time ago. We've come a long way in design and, and uh, the way bikes work and how they handle. Yeah, well, I mentioned the KLR. It hasn't come that far. <laughs> I mean, they have... No, uh, it hasn't. They, it's still they, pretty crude. <laughs> oh, they could do so much with that. I mean, I had one, and I loved the bike. It was great fun. I mean, it was good. At, it, was, it was the best at nothing, but it was great at so many things. Yeah, but the replacement for that would arguably be something like uh, the new S650 BMWs or the F800 GS, for instance. And that's light years ahead in everything about it. So, I mean, the yeah. KLR is good, simple, basic. If I was going to go around the world solo, I'd take either a KLR. Personally, I'd take a DR650. I'm not a fan of KLRs, but uh, they work very well. Personally, I prefer the DR. But either one of them, yeah, jump on it, go. They'll do the job without a doubt. Perfect. Yeah, the, with the KLR, though, to the F800, it seems like a different world. The F800 is a much more refined machine with more horsepower, etc. But the DR is certainly a, a direct comparison. I'm curious about your, your choice for the DR. Is it just because you're a Suzuki man? No. Um, I was a Suzuki dealer once upon a time, a long time ago, but that really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's more the, the DR feels better. I like the way it feels, the way it rides. Um, I like the way the engine works better. Um, I think it's a better design. Um, it's more, it's a better off-road bike by far than a KLR. Mm -hmm. uh, On-road, they're probably comparable. The KLR is a little bit cheaper. Um, and I think the Suzuki is probably a little nicer done. You know, looking at it from a mechanics point of view, the DR is better. But a lot of it's personal. You just, some bikes just resonate with you and some bikes just don't. Right. You didn't mention the cooling system there, so that's not a big concern for you, the liquid to air. Yeah, it's a factor, and I, I, I think it's it's an important thing. But I'll tell you, if I was going to go and ride across Canada on the Trans-Canada Trail tomorrow, I'd probably buy a DRZ400, which is water-cooled. Smaller bike and a little easier to, to handle. Small, light, easy. You can ride it solo in the dirt, and if it falls over, it's no big deal. It's light, it's relatively inexpensive, Handling's good. Yeah. Great bike. It, when prepping a bike to go on some sort of adventure, whether it be across Canada, around the world, what's the components that you think are the, are the most vital? What, what things would you look at if you're, um, if you're describing to someone uh, things that they should be considering, be it suspension or tires, etc.? Absolutely number one is the rear shock. The rear shock that comes with bikes is adequate for solo for about 15,000 kilometers, 20,000 kilometers, and then it's toast. You load it up with luggage and put a passenger on the back and it's a joke. And most people don't understand that or realize it until they put a good shock on and then they go, oh, that shock was junk. Uh, so my, f my first recommendation is buy a good shock and put it on. That's the first, first thing. From there, it's make sure you've got Luggage that you like, whether it's hard or soft, it really doesn't matter. It's personal preference again. Um, for primarily road to up, then I would definitely say hard luggage. For primarily off-road, like riding across Canada on the Trans-Canada Trail, i definitely go soft luggage. Um, from there, a lot of personal preferences, but mostly keep it simple. Don't put too much stuff on it. Uh, as motorcyclists, we have a bad habit of trying to make the bike perfect, and perfect means more gadgets, and more gadgets means more money and more weight and more things to break. So keep it simple. The, the closer to standard it is, the better. I mean, there's things you need to fix, and there's things that are just aren't right for serious riding off-road or long-distance touring you have to change. But really think about what 
needs to be changed as opposed to, ooh, that's a neat toy, I want it. There's, there's a big difference. You've got to be careful. Yeah, I'm a big fan of gadgets myself. I have to admit, I, I love gadgets and I love little things that uh, that you can add on and change with the motorcycle, but I'm very hesitant to do it for exactly that reason. I've, I've had that discussion with many people. I mean, even with my seat, I have the stock seat on my F800 and I just leave it that way because it's fine for me. You know, it works for me and I'd rather put that 500 bucks into fuel rather than putting it into a, a new seat. Perfect. Exactly right. If it works, leave it alone. Yeah, just because somebody makes a different one doesn't mean it's better, especially for you. It's uh, very much better for their bank account if you buy it, but it's not necessarily better overall and for for getting uh, getting a long way. You can often spend uh, that same money on fuel, exactly as you say, and use it on spend it on travel. I mean, one of the things I tell people is look at this gadget, hold it in your hand, and say that's sixty dollars. Hmm, that's two days travel. Do I need it that badly? Hmm. Start mm -hmm. adding things up that way, and you'll find that you need a whole lot less than you thought you needed. Mm -hmm. And you do anyway, because everybody buys too much crap and sends half of it home anyway. That's kind of normal. I'm also thinking about reliability issues. To me, it seems that the more you modify something, the the more chance you have for problems. I mean, I know there's there's factory problems. You you get bikes, and certain bikes will have certain problems, and some bikes will just have flukes. Uh, machinery does that. But I think the more you're taking, in my mind, in my experience, the more you're taking things apart and adding aftermarket things in um, that aren't particularly or necessarily designed exactly for that use, um, your chance mm -hmm. having more problems. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. There are things that you need to do to protect the bike, and there are factory flaws like the Kawasaki KLR650's famous doohickey. That needed fixing. I mean, that was a requirement, but there's not that many things that have to be replaced. So, again, like the um, Jacques Lucasen's R1, it was almost stock. He put a big box on the back of it, and the rest of it was 99% standard. Peter and Kay Forwood's Harley Electroglide. They did every country in the world. That's 193 countries on Electroglide, half a million kilometers on it, and the bike was absolutely bone stock standard. I saw them on, on one of your videos, actually, I think, uh, where you or someone was interviewing them, and they said they even kept the stock gas tank because they found it was just better to get a, buy a gas can when they needed the more, a longer range. Yes, yes, and I will tell people that very frequently. Um, you can buy big gas tanks for lots of different bikes, um, but do you really need 40 liters? The, the number of times you need a big gas tank is very few, and you can always buy a gas can. Anytime there's a long distance between fuel stations, you'll find that there's somebody there selling spare gas cans. It might be a milk jug, it might be a Coke bottle, but it's a way of carrying gas, and that's all you need. When you consider that a big tank is a minimum of $1,000 and probably more like 1500 to 2000 for a big tank for a lot of bikes, that's a lot of travel time, and you can buy a lot of milk jugs for that full of fuel. Yeah, and if anything goes wrong with that and you have to replace it, I'm thinking of Rene uh, Cormier, I believe it was, I was just talking to uh, the other day, and he was saying about, uh, yeah, it was, and he, he got his, um, he parked his bike in the desert and somebody shot a hole in it, and, and he looked at replacing <laughs> it, and he said it was $2,500 to buy it. So all of a sudden yep. now he's got this big tank that needs repair, and now it's going to be another $2,500, so it, it makes you wonder if, uh, if yep. it's worth it in the long run. Yeah, and there's probably a few standard gas tanks out there selling cheap because somebody's put a big tank on, and you can get it for a cheap replacement price. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. And the thing is, he didn't. He he ended up um, getting it repaired. But uh, one thing he said to me was that um, in the end, he wouldn't do it again. He wouldn't replace the tank. He'd just keep the stock tank. So going on the same thought process as you have. Yeah. Yeah, we started off with a 40-liter tank, and we actually used the 40 liters exactly once. Um, probably it was handy a few times, but mostly we didn't need it. You know, the only time we needed it was we were in Nicaragua during the Contra Wars, and it was a week to get the ration coupon to get into the line to get to wait a week for the actual fuel. And we decided we didn't want to sit in Nicaragua for two weeks uh, at a time when you couldn't do anything or go anywhere because of the, the uh, guerrilla warfare that was going on at the time. Uh, so we headed for Costa Rica, and we pulled into the first fuel station in Costa Rica on fumes. It just coughed and died as, just as we pulled in. So we actually used the 40 liters that time, but other than that, not once. So it's kind of wasted. 
So that's a really interesting point. I mean, large gas tanks are a huge conversation for anyone talking about going any distances with motorcycles. And, and that's a very good point to think that someone like yourself has, has ridden all that distance and only had a use for it once, which you probably could have got around as well yeah. there uh, with, a, with a gas yeah, can. Absolutely. Uh, you can always get a gas can, tie a milk jug on the back, full of fuel, and 50 kilometers down the road, pour the milk jug into your gas tank. Don't carry the spare fuel on the bike until your tank runs out. Put it in as soon as you can because the, the your spare fuel is in a not very good container and can fail and I've had people stop and all set to put it in because they're running onto reserve and they look back and they didn't tie it on good enough and it's gone. So <laughs> pour it into the tank as soon as possible. Get that weight where it should be and eliminate issues. But uh, past that, no, just any kind of sense and you're fine. You can always get a gas can. And then with the two-liter bottles that you can get now for Coke bottles, I'm not sure if they're available around the world, but they certainly are in North America. They're so incredibly durable. Yes. And if you can find a way to tie that on, I mean, boy, they will hold just any sort of liquid and really put up with quite yeah. the abuse. Yeah, there's, they're available everywhere. There's jugs of various kinds for carrying all kinds of liquids everywhere. It's, it's never a problem. I've seen um, in Africa, somebody at the side of the road, with about 20 bottles of various kinds, and I do mean various kinds, to hold fuel in, selling gas. It's not a problem. I think that one of the problems is with a, a big tank is that you tend to have it full all the time. I and mean, that's what I do with my KLR. I always want to top it up, make sure I've got that full tank while I'm running with all yep, that weight. Absolutely, you do that <laughs> all the time. Um, it's I, I will say it's very nice having a big tank. Uh, we just did a seven-week tour around Europe, going to half a dozen events of some of ours and some of Touratex. And uh, it only had a 23-liter tank, which got annoying on, on occasion, but we didn't have to have something bigger. So traveling with a 40-liter tank, I can tell you, you fill it up and you don't even think about fuel for two days. And that's really neat. But it's big, mm -hmm. it's heavy, it's expensive. And when a bike falls over with a full load of fuel, let me tell you, it's really heavy. <laughs> so there's advantages and disadvantages. Do you have any kilometer range that you find is ideal for, for capacity? Well, I think if you've got a 20-liter or bigger fuel tank, you're okay 95% of the way for just about anybody. Um, there's not very many places where you need to get extra fuel. There's a couple of spots in Bolivia, a few spots in Africa, but only a few. South America, um, trying to think, Ruta Corenta, yeah, a little extra wouldn't hurt. But that's about it. It's just not that many places you need it anymore. I mean, an important concept that people need to really get their heads around is you're on a road of some sort, and it goes from a town to another town. And guess what? People drive that road in cars, and cars have a certain range, and there's fuel at each end of the, of the road. It's like everybody else needs fuel, too. It's not like people drive for 1,000 miles without any fuel because cars have a limited range and nobody carries spare fuel for a car. That's important to keep in mind and, and an important realization. And, and the other part that goes with that isn't just the fuel, but guess what? There's food at each end of the road as well. And there's also, if the, if the weather's bad, you can buy a sweater to get something a little bit warmer. So you don't even have to carry a spare sweater because you can always buy one if you really need one. So it's not like you're going off to the middle of nowhere. Um, you're not crossing the top of Siberia on your own because you can't go do that. You know, it, there's, the stuff is there. It's, it's not like it's not available. You're not going into the, the middle of nowhere. I'm glad you mentioned this because it's something that's always left me scratching my head as I started to get into adventure motorcycle riding. Um, when people would talk about gearing up and getting all the gear they need. Now, I come from an adventure background, canoeing, kayaking, where you're you're heading off somewhere and you don't have access to things. And my thing would always be, well, wait a second. Why don't you just go to the store and buy it? I don't, yes. I don't quite understand. Now, I understand there's places in the world where things are probably going to be difficult to find. But from all the travelers I've spoke with, the people who have actually went out there and done a lot of traveling, they, they all have that same attitude of, well, you're going to find something yep. somewhere. Yep. Wherever you are, somebody else is nearby, and somebody else needs the same things you need. And I always look at the it's cold situation because that's where people really get themselves all messed up. Um, if it's cold and you're cold, somebody else is cold too, and somebody is selling sweaters, jackets, whatever, 
or rain gear or something that you can use too. It may not be the latest whiz bang gear from North Face, but hey, it works and it's cheap. Just buy it. Give it away when you're when you don't need it anymore. Don't carry everything. There was a, a couple I can think of who headed off with two complete riding suits, a summer suit and a winter suit. They felt really dumb in the middle of Africa. You know? <laughs> and there was a Canadian who headed off with the world's largest top box to South America, full of freeze-dried food. What, they don't eat down there? <laughs> I wish you didn't have said Canadian. Now I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> hey, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it was. It was a Canadian. What can you say? <laughs> so people just don't think sometimes, you know, you are going where there are other people. They need the same things you do. Um, we ran into a place in Africa. It was, we've been looking, we typically eat cereal for breakfast and getting good milk in Africa was difficult uh, until we discovered powdered milk from New Zealand. Wonderful. Full whole milk uh, full fat milk, powdered milk from New Zealand in little tiny shacks, bags and bags and bags of the stuff. They'd have a hundred bags of the stuff stacked up and it was dirt cheap. It was really good, completely safe to eat. Perfect. Fantastic. And you wouldn't have thought it, but right. there it was. Now, Grant, you've got some um, Horizons Unlimited events coming up. Um, I know they're going on all the time, all around the world, uh, North America, South America, Africa, Australia, Europe, uh, Asia. Tell us about dates you've got coming up uh, in the next little while. There are several Horizons Unlimited Adventure Traveler events coming up in Canada and the USA. Ontario, CanWest, and California are coming up. Check out the website and see what the dates are, and I hope to see you there. Grant, can we talk just for a minute about what someone can expect if they go to the Horizons Unlimited event, any one of them for that matter? Um, what can they expect there? At all of our events, you'll find a whole lot of other travelers, people interested in traveling. There'll be experienced travelers that have done major trips around the world, and there'll be new people that have never done anything and haven't gone anywhere but want to learn all about it. There's a lot of presentations. We'll have 30, 40, 50 presentations or more on how to ride around the world, technical sessions on how to do it, how to pack your bike, changing tires, inspirational sessions on where people went and what they did and what they learned, and um, just an opportunity to meet a whole lot of other people interested in adventure travel. Yeah, so even if you're not into going anywhere on your motorcycle, just curious about the whole thing or, or interested in finding out about um, some techniques on, you mentioned tire change, there's people there that have really lived and breathed motorcycles, right? So you, you can, you'll pick up so much. Oh, yeah. The, the amount of information there is mind-boggling, and there are so many sessions going on that usually you have to choose between two or three or they're going on at the same time. It's absolutely chock-full of information. There's, your, your biggest problem will be figuring out which ones you're going to get to see, and at the end of it, you'll, your brain will be exploding with two things. One is a huge amount of information on how to, and the other one is where am I going to go now? because you'll be so inspired by all the people telling you about the wonderful adventures they had that you'll just be ready to go yourself. And you'll have learned all about how to as well. And you can ride your bike there, and there's usually camping available, right? Yep, there's always camping. That's a very important part. Um, and if your bike isn't running, we've had people write and say, oh, I, I can't come, my bike isn't running. Well, have you got a car? Have you got a thumb? Can you hitchhike? Can you take a bus? Um, it doesn't matter. We don't care what you're riding, driving, it doesn't matter. We have people coming on 4x4s uh, because they come to the website for adventure travel information. We have bicyclists coming. It doesn't matter what you ride or drive. Just come. You'll love it. And that's something I, I probably should have touched on before. Is Horizons Unlimited strictly motorcycle travel? Absolutely not. It's primarily, that's where we started, and that's probably 95% of it. But there's a lot of people using 4x4s that are doing this kind of travel, and they have the same questions that we have on motorcycles for getting through borders and where to go and what are the interesting places and how do you deal with uh, customs and all kinds of things. And uh, what do you take? I mean, they can carry more than we can, but they still are limited. And the bicyclists, of course, are ultra-limited and ultra-hardcore. Um, so it's all the same kind of information. So we even have forums for four-wheel drives and for bicycles. Yeah, so it's great. So anyone, really. I mean, th this has got to be something that would just draw in anyone, even somebody who's just curious of what is going on. It's worthwhile dropping oh, yeah. by and see. <laughs> and, and they can find the information right on the website. There. I think it's on, the, uh, it's on one of the banners on the right-hand side. Yep, yep. Next HU events. For instance, we've got, let's see, Can West is coming up August 21st. 
North Carolina, September 4th, Ontario, September 11th, and California, September 25th. And from there, we go to Australia and then South Africa. That's great. Are, are you going to attend all of these? Uh, everything except North Carolina will be at all of them. There's CanWest, Ontario, California will be at. We have four events in Australia that we'll be at, and we'll be at the South Africa one as well. Well, thank you very much, Grant. I really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. I've been talking with Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. And if you haven't been to their website, boy, you got to go there. You've been missing out already. You've got to get there and check it out. It is absolutely loaded. I mean, you can spend a lot of time on this site and barely touch it. I think he said 114,000 pages on it now. www.horizonsunlimited.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. But when you get there, you'll see it's a beautifully designed site as well with an outdoorsy, travel-y look to it. But the menu system is amazing, and Grant talked about it there. You've got to go and check it out there's just so much there and it's so well organized it's like getting uh, you know a hundred books for free all right there and you can log on and become a, a member of the whole bit and check it out like we talked about the HU events down there on the right hand side as soon as you go to the home page it says next HU events and so if you're listening to this and the events that we've just listed there are over check that box because there's going to be more they run every year so there's always going to be an event close to you that you can get to and, and go check it out and we'll get Grant back again on a semi-regular basis I think to uh, talk about different things because he is a wealth of information when it comes to overlanding this wraps up another adventure rider radio we hope you liked listening to it as much as we did making it remember you can find us on twitter at adv rider radio so do the little at sign and then do adv rider radio Visit the website as well, www.adventureriderradio, and you can listen to all the episodes on there and get more information as well. There's even uh, some videos posted on there and some other things you're going to find. Get out there and ride. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Hello there, listeners. My name is Austin Vince. I'm speaking to you from London, England. This is Adventure Riot Radio. This is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio.